Hello, Chris here, uh, popping in during the editing to just say that uh, those of you who received notifications recently uh, about some of the earlier episodes being released, uh, that was actually just us updating the quality of the first nine episodes. Uh, we've re-recorded the first nine episodes of the podcast. So yeah, if you've received notifications saying that we have new episodes out, episodes one to nine, they aren't actually new episodes. They were just us re-recording exactly the same content, just with better sound quality and all of that kind of stuff. So don't panic. There isn't uh, a lot of new extra content out there for you. So yeah. And uh, now back to your regular programming. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of A Flatpack History of Sweden. I am Chris. And I'm Elsa. And ordinarily, we take you on a journey through Swedish history from when the first humans arrived here to the modern day, all retold in English. But today, we're ignoring the humans to instead pay some much-needed attention to the pets and animals of Swedish history. Yes, it was brought to our attention a few weeks ago that we've not spent nearly enough time talking about the cats, dogs, horses, and even the occasional pig and goat in Swedish history. This was kindly pointed out to us by Diego, a dog who listens to us along with his master Stephen when they go on walks together around Stockholm. Like we said when we read out their reviews in episode 77, we've had a think about your feedback, Diego, and we think you're totally right. So thank you so much for letting us know and giving us this reason to do a deep dive into the history of pets and some of the animals in Sweden. We hope you enjoy this very special episode and uh, keep listening to the podcast along with your human. But before we get started, we need to do our Swedish phrase of the week. And what better phrase to cover than one that involves dogs? Man kan inte lära gamla hundar sitta. One cannot teach old dogs to sit. Alternatively, det är svårt att lära gamla hundar sitta. It's difficult to teach old dogs to sit. So these are basically both versions of the English phrase you can't teach an old dog new tricks, meaning it's impossible to change people's habits, traits or mindset once they've had them for a while. Exactly. The only difference is if you want to say that you can't do it, man kan inte lära gamla hundar sitta, or if you want to say that it's just difficult, det är svårt. Yeah, so there's a slight difference there uh, compared to the English, but still very similar to the English phrase nonetheless. Just that in Sweden, I guess, uh, you teach them just to sit down and not do any tricks, just sitting down is hard enough. Yeah, I don't know to what extent dogs sit naturally or if that is a trick that humans teach them to do. Well, of course they sit down. They're not just going to stand up the whole time. <laughs> no, but they lie down. Yeah, but they sit down too. Have you ever seen a dog sort of naturally wandering about and sit down without being told by a human? No, to but do they're it? always with their human who tells them to do other things like walk and catch this ball and... <laughs> bark at my horrible neighbor no i think i've lived in areas where you have a lot more uh, kind of dogs who roam freely without their humans uh if they indeed have any humans and they never sit down they only ever lie or stand or walk leading me to think that it might not be a natural behavior in dogs to sit well, we should have clearly researched this before part of the Diego, episode. if you're listening, could you message us and tell us if it's natural for a dog to sit or not, please? Yeah, good idea. Anyway, let's get on with the episode. 
Yeah, and let's get started with the history of Swedish pets and animals uh, before we start talking about some more famous ones. And we're not going to make it too broad and long, uh, so we thought we'd mainly limit it to pets or animals kept by humans in the sense of domesticated animals, animals that were kept by humans in one form or another, either for companionship, transport, as an aid in farming or industry, or even kept to become food. So that means we'll skip the bears, moose, and even mice of Swedish history, but we'll get back to them at some point, maybe. Yeah, and we'll divide this episode in two parts. First, we'll take a closer look at how pets and farm animals were kept in the mid and late medieval period, so where we are in our ordinary episode chronology. And then, in the second part, we'll talk specifically about a few famous pets in Swedish history, mainly two royal horses and an unnamed brown dog. Sounds like a good plan to me. Like almost everywhere in the world, Swedish people have historically lived closely together with animals. In fact, animal bones are the second most common find in archaeological excavations, beaten only by finds of building material, which indicates to what a large extent animals were around people. Animals or livestock were, of course, kept on farms, but unlike today, they were also kept in castles and in the towns. Although uh, the king has a castle and he has a dog, so there's at least one animal kept in a castle. True, true. I mean, there are animals still in the city, but, you know, back in medieval times, it was more so pigs and cows and not just cats and dogs. Yeah, as we'll get onto. And because, yeah, that's why a Swedish medieval town was actually more like a collection of farms than what we think of as a town today. Historian and writer Gudrun Vestnert has painted a vivid picture of what Stockholm would have looked like in the 13 and 1400s with all the cats, dogs, pigs, cows, sheep, geese and other animals that inhabited the town. And she talks about how almost all farm animals were smaller than what they are today. A full-grown sheep only weighed 14 kilograms, which is less than a lamb does today, so it's a huge difference. A pig back then was around 60 to 70 centimetres tall and weighed around 60 kilograms, whereas today a pig weighs around 80 kilograms. The pigs in medieval Sweden weren't as pink as they are today either. Back then they were more grey and had more coarse hair too. But pigs have been with us for a long time though. There's evidence of domesticated pigs in Sweden since the Stone Age. The pig is a bit special because it's almost the only single-use animal, so to say. It's only kept for its meat, unlike sheep, for example, that was kept both for wool and milk, and to some lesser extent for their meat. Pigs were just meat. In Stockholm, the inhabitants would take their sheep and goats in rowing boats, which is a fun thing to imagine, just a boatload of goats, and row them out to grace on Riddaholmen, which was uh, actually back then called Skidholmen, Skid being the Swedish word for a baby goat. That's a cool name for the island. And cows were also primarily kept for the byproduct, for the milk. It was only when they couldn't produce any milk anymore that they were slaughtered and eaten as tasty Swedish uh, medieval hamburgers. (laughs) Maybe. 
in Stockholm, it was only property owners, you know, people who owned their own house and other company buildings and not tenants or labourers who were allowed to own pigs and cows. And they were only allowed to keep one cow each, obviously because they're pretty huge. The cows were kept bound up in the yard and taken out on the Malmar, the areas around the city, to graze on. And similarly, pigs had to be kept in a pen or a sty and had to be kept inside at night. And it was in fact that city laws that were quite detailed on how you were allowed to keep these animals. One city law for Stockholm, for example, says you're not allowed to keep your pigs in your basement or in the attic. <laughs> Which I suppose is, is nice for the pigs, if nothing else. I don't know. Some people have nice basements. True, but it's nicer to be in a nice sty rather than put away in someone's basement. Yeah, but the basement, you know, especially in America, you have like game rooms and all these kind of stuff. I don't think that was life for a medieval pig, though, to have your own game room. <laughs> you never know. The laws weren't just there for the comfort of the animals, but also to try and keep some sort of order in the city, which was after all relatively small, only consisting of the one island we today call Gamla Stan, the old town. And on this limited island, both people and animals were supposed to share the space and maintain some sort of order and hygiene. We see an example of this space issue in a letter of privilege from 1436 in which the people of Stockholm get the right to graze their cattle on Åsön, which is today called Södermalm, a major part of the modern-day city centre, and the Sikla island, to alleviate some of the burden of having both people and animals living just on this one island. That makes so much sense. And the limited space is the reason why horses were kept outside the city too on these surrounding Malmar or grazing areas. There simply just wasn't enough room for stables in the city. We've had domesticated horses in Sweden since the early Stone Age. We've talked about these uh, early arrival of animals and their uses in the very first episodes of the podcast. And much like with pigs and sheep and cows, many of the horses were also smaller than their modern-day counterparts, and they measured between 120 and 145 centimetres on average, whereas uh, most horses today, apart from those really mini ones, are between 150 and 170 centimetres. In the latter part of the Middle Ages, the period pretty much what we're covering now in the regular episodes, saw a growing interest in breeding horses specifically for battle. But this was still something that mainly only a few wealthy knights had the resources to do. Most people used horses for transportation alone and preferred a smaller, hard-working and perhaps most important less expensive horse that could carry a human and loads of stuff with it for transport. The reason why only rich people could afford battle horses was because a horse bred for battle could cost as much as 140 marks compared to a regular cart horse that cost around 17 marks. So, you know, nearly 10 times as much. Yeah, and looking after horses was a distinctly male job. The horses were also often fed better than other farm animals, eating more hay and barley than cows did. Feeding not just horses but all animals was a constant struggle for a medieval Stockholmer, and indeed for anyone in Sweden. And this was because of the inability to store feed for any real length of time. So you were dependent on what the harvest was like each season, and so a bad year or a few bad years in a row could result in complete devastation for both animals and humans. 
The limits in access to feed explains why medieval animals were smaller than their modern-day counterparts, but also why autumn has always been the traditional slaughter season in Sweden. Once it got too cold for the animals to be kept outside where they could eat all the grass they wanted, the ones that people weren't able to keep over the winter just had to be slaughtered, and that meant their meat was taken care of, often by preserving it with salting and drying it so nothing went to waste. In his book At Home at the Castle, which is a great name, Martin Rundqvist writes that archaeology has revealed bones with regularly spaced cut marks showing that the meat was sliced neatly off the bone, possibly from a smoked or dried leg of lamb. So that gives a great idea of how the meat was eaten in the Middle Ages too. The animals that were going to be kept over the winter were taken in and given hay and leaves and branches from trees as winter feed. So medieval Swedes also kept poultry, primarily hens and geese. Again, they were smaller than they are today and kept primarily for their eggs, not so much for the meat. Geese, though, had another function because their feathers became pens. That's really important, well, for some people at least. Yeah, and actually speaking of hens and geese, Stockholm Castle kept its own hens because of their large needs for eggs. They having omelettes every day for breakfast or something. <laughs> yeah. In general, it was common for castles around the country to keep their own animals, especially cattle and pigs and goats. Excavations done at Stegholm Castle in Småland suggest that they had eight cattle and seven adult pigs, which is a lot less than on the surrounding local farms, which had 54 cattle and 11 pigs, but still more than the castles in Germany had around the same time. Archaeology suggested there were only a few pigs and chickens that were kept within the castle walls. It seems like Stockholm Castle was a bit of an exception with its hens for making uh, egg, egg omelettes as opposed <laughs> yeah. to other omelettes. Can you make other omelettes? I don't know. Vegan omelettes? We also we don't have historical evidence that these Stockholm Castle hens were uh, kept only for omelette purposes. That's Chris uh, making educated guesses of or history. Not educated at all, just making <laughs> it up. But now it's time to move on to what sparked the idea for this episode in the first place, namely dogs. So there are around five distinct types of dogs in Scandinavia in the Middle Ages. There were lap dogs, sight hounds, general hunting dogs, herding dogs, and guard dogs. The dogs often roamed free and sort of ate a bit of everything, quite often rubbish, so far from the dried dog food they get today. Guard dogs were particularly pricey, since in an era before any real organised law enforcement, certainly way before electronic alarms, dogs were the best way of protecting yourself and your property, or at least finding out about your being robbed, <laughs> even if they didn't necessarily help after. Lap dogs, small dogs that were kept purely for company, were also expensive. They were meant to be small and could be carried around. I came across one reference in my research that said that they shouldn't be bigger than that a grown man could close his hand around their necks, which I thought was a bit of an odd way to determine size, but hey-oh. 
True. Uh, and another much more cute fact was that these lap dogs often had their fur cut so they looked like tiny lions, which is hilarious. And you actually see that in some medieval like paintings yeah. and tapestries and things, don't you? So yeah, that's where this comes from. That style should come back for dogs, actually. Mm, maybe not. <laughs> and people didn't just carry them around and show them off like tiny lions. They also took them to bed with them because that's how they uh, like to keep the bed warm. Oh, that's nice. Like a tiny dog hot water bottle, basically. Not necessarily the cleanest, though. Aww. We only know of this practice in Sweden because the Bridgetine nuns were strictly forbidden from keeping these lapdog hot water bottles since it was seen as encouraging bad behaviour. <laughs> Strict rules there in the monastery. But now we actually have uh, some of the most popular dog names in medieval Sweden. We know this from city records, when either people's inventories are listed, or what they have at home is written down, or if the dogs feature somehow in connection to a court case. And so people have worked out that the five popular dog names in medieval Stockholm were Bracki, Luska, Porsky, Ruska, and Stutti. And they actually all sound quite Finnish, even. Yeah, <laughs> but they're all good, sort of short, punchy dog names, I'd say. Porsi in particular. I was going to say Stutti or Ruska. Good sort of one, one or two syllable names. Now, for those who weren't dog people in the Middle Ages, there were also cats as an option when it comes to pets. We've had domesticated cats in the Nordic countries for around 1,500 years. Just like dogs, cats were working animals. They were used as pest control, very much appreciated for their ability to catch vermin. Yeah, and this is a really important job because with animals and people living so closely together and considering the lack of access to clean water and general avoidance of any hygiene, there was no shortage of vermin or animal feces or lice and all that kind of stuff. So you can only imagine what medieval Stockholm and other cities would have smelt like, for one. Definitely. Animals also feature as an aspect in many of the oldest laws in Sweden. The fact that it is illegal to abuse animals is one of the laws that we have carried over from our very oldest legal records into the modern day. And whilst many animals were kept for the specific purpose of consuming what they produced and then consuming them, the Catholic faith that Swedes adhered to at the time also banned eating certain animals, like horse, dogs and cats. Another indication of how priced animals were to their owners is the harsh punishments dealt out for stealing them. Stealing live animals was actually punishable by death. We've got an example of this from Stockholm in 1477, when a man called Morten Jönsson admits in court to stealing a cow from Ingvar Jäkne at Bergosta Farm. So Morten is sentenced to death in this case. Uh, the case has a certain amount of irony attached to it, because Morten himself was actually an executioner by trade, but in Oerbo over in Finland. So you'd think he would have at least a list of crimes for what you're put to death for committing. So yeah. he was a bit dumb, wasn't he? 
the executioner was executed. <laughs> Indeed. And another crime that was punishable by death was to have sexual relations with animals. So uh, at least they were a bit wise to that uh, back in the day. And judging by old legal records, this seems to be of not an entirely uncommon crime, unfortunately, but one that was definitely uh, seen by society as appalling. Um, yeah, so we've now covered what life was like for a lot of animals in medieval Sweden, especially those who lived in Stockholm. So I think it's probably time to move on to the second part of the episode and look at the lives and deeds of a few specific animals in Swedish history. And you have one you want to start with. Yes. Can I start by telling the story of Streif? Please do. Sounds very German. Yes. Streif was a German stallion of the breed Oldenburger. So he's German by nature. Yep, German by breed. And German by name. Yes. And uh, he's also German because his first owner was German too, right? Yes, his first owner was a German officer by the name of Johann Streif von Laustein, who named the horse after himself. Johann Streif von Laustein served in the Swedish army during the Thirty Years' War, and in 1631, Streif was bought by none other than the King of Sweden himself, Gustav den Andre Adolf, or Gustavus Adolphus, as he's usually known in English, even though that's Latin, but... Anyway, Gustavus was the lead figure in the Protestant faction of the Thirty Years' War. He was a real warrior king, spending a lot of time on the battlefields across Europe and earning the nickname the Lion of the North. His exploits will literally get dozens of episodes devoted to them when we arrive there, so don't worry. But for now, let's just talk about Strife. The king paid a whopping 1,000 riksdaler for Streif. That's when a normal horse at the time usually cost around 70 or 80. Yeah, so this is one fancy horse. But Streif proved worth the money as a very capable horse in battle. And he was most likely the horse that the king rode when he was victorious at the Battle of Breitenfeld in 1631. And he definitely carried the king into battle on a fateful foggy November morning in Lutzen in 1632. At some point during that battle, the king was shot in the back and then in the arm, but was determined to continue fighting. It was only after Strife was hit with a bullet in the stomach, making him charge and buck around and knock the king out of the saddle, that enemy soldiers were able to close in and deal mortal sword blows to the king. Unlike his master, Strife survived the battle. He was thought to mourn his master because he refused to eat for three days. I mean, that could also be because he'd been shot in the stomach, but, you know, I'm no veterinarian. <laughs> oh, no, he's grieving. Uh, no, he has a hole in his stomach. That's not. That's why he's not eating. It's like those cartoons where you eat something and it just, like, falls out of your stomach. <laughs> oh, poor Strife. When the Swedish forces were retreating and carried the king's body with them back to Sweden, Strife was part of that procession. Sadly, though, Strife died before they reached the Swedish mainland. He took his last breath in the spring of 1633 in the German town of Volgast, which was then part of the Swedish-controlled area of Pomerania. 
for unknown reasons, it was decided that Streif was going to be preserved. So he was skinned and then stuffed on a wooden frame, looking very lifelike indeed. Along with a few other of the king's private possessions, Streif was put on display in Stockholm. And he's still there. Yes. Strife is still on display for everyone to see 390 years <laughs> after his death. Uh, these days, he's in a glass booth in the museum Livrustkammeren in Stockholm, which has all sorts of interesting objects from Swedish history on display. Uh, Strife is definitely one of their most famous pieces, and he has the honour of being the museum's logo, of all things. Bizarre, considering all the other stuff they have, he gets to be the logo. Well, he was thought to have the honour of being Europe's oldest preserved horse, which is also an odd thing to be. Put that on a plaque. Yeah. (laughs) But he was robbed of that title a few years ago when DNA testing of a preserved horse in a museum in Ingelstadt in Bavaria in Germany was proved to be a few years older than Strife. So he's not really robbed then. He was rightfully revoked. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But interestingly, though, the horse in Ingolstadt, uh, who we don't know the name of, is also one of Gustav Denanger Adolf, Gustavus Adolphus' horses. The Swedish forces laid siege to that town in 1632, but when they were forced to retreat, the German forces took the king's horse as a kind of trophy and again decided to stuff it and put it on display. So it's actually only a year older than Strife. And uh, who would have guessed that Gustavus Adolphus would leave so many stuffed horses behind (laughs) him? What's the deal with his horses? Are they like magic or something? He was a good warrior king, and I suppose a warrior king is only as good as the (laughs) horse that he rides on. Yeah, maybe. Another king that's famous for his wars and deeds on the battlefield is Karl den Tolfte, Karl Twelfth, who ruled Sweden from 1697 to 1718, a period marked by the Great Northern War. His horse, Brandklipparen, also survived his master, who died after having been shot at Fredrikshald Fortress in Norway. In fact, Brandklipparen is said to have lived for... 40 years, and some records even suggest that Karl XII inherited the horse from his father, fellow warrior king Karl XI, called the 11th. That's very unlikely, considering most horses, even today, with access to modern uh, medicine and veterinarian techniques, barely live to 20. Instead, it was most likely a case of several horses all being called Brand Clipper, and which is which translates to the Fire Clipper, yep. which is a odd name. Speaking of odd things, there's an odd memorial stone to Brand Clipper and outside the wall surrounding the church in Engsher in Vestmanland. Legend has it that the king's court jester, a hunchbacked dwarf by the name of Anders Luxemburg, was one of the last few people to see the king before he died. And he took the horse with him when the army was retreating from Norway. So all these kings and their horses die when the Swedish troops run away. Um, He took this horse during this retreat and eventually took him to his new place of employment at Engser Castle. 
here, one night in 1740, the horse was making a lot of noise in the stable for some reason, and when the stable hand came to open the door to see what was going on, Brand Clipper and Broke Free charged, went a bit crazy, and ran straight into the wall and died. And then they put up this memorial stone for him. It's a very odd story. Carl XII seems to have had a bit of a thing for naming his consecutive pets the same name, if that's indeed the case with Brandklipparen. We know for sure that the king had three dogs, not at the same time, but one after the other, and that they were all called Pompe. When Pompe died, the king gets a new Pompe and a third Pompe. One Pompe is buried in the park at Carlberg Castle here in Stockholm, Another was with the king in battle and died in the king's bed when the army was encamped at Torn in Poland in 1703. We know these details because the king writes to his sister, Princess Hedwig Sophia, that he's very upset about the dog dying. That's quite sad, but also nice to know that this very much battle-hardened warrior king did show some feelings occasionally, but to his pets. Yeah. It's not just the monarchs of years gone by who've been fond of their pets. The current king of Sweden, Carl Gustav XVI, likes to go hunting. So it's not surprising that you often see him walking his hunting dog, Brandy. Sometimes Queen Sylvia is photographed with uh, the pair on their walks, although I don't think she goes hunting with them. Yeah, I suppose it suits a hunting-interested person like the current king to have a breed like Brandy, who's a Bavarian mountain hound, renowned for their ability to scent out the prey. And he said in an interview in 2017 that she's the nicest dog he's ever known, which is an interesting choice of words, uh, but high praise at least. But why don't we finish off this episode on a story about another brown dog, just like Brandy, and what became known as the Brown Dog Affair, or Bruna Hund Affären in Swedish. It could also be the Brown Dog Shop. In, <laughs> in Swedish, Swedish, yes. <laughs> because, yeah, the same word for shop is also uh, like affair or business yes. or like, yeah. But in this context, it's an affair, as in a political scandal or, yeah. Uh, yeah. Not a place where you can only buy brown dogs. Oh, I want to have a shop that only sells brown dogs. That'd be cute. Yeah, well, this is actually quite cool because it's uh, where Swedish and British history interlinks a bit, doesn't it? Indeed, and it's quite a gruesome tale, but with a good ending. So bear with us. It takes place in London, but involves two Swedish ladies. So it's the 2nd of February, 1903, and Professor of Physiology at University College London, Ernest Starling, is given a lecture in surgery. Now, this is the gruesome bit, because to illustrate to his students what's happening, uh, Professor Starling is using a very special teaching aid. A small brown dog, or as he himself described it later, a small brown mongrel, allegedly a terrier with short ruggish hair, about six kilos in weight. Before the lecture, he had drugged the dog with a mix of morphine, alcohol, chloroform and ether. <laughs> wow. <laughs> 
He can get his hands on a lot of stuff, can't he? <laughs> and Professor Starling, when he wasn't being a drug dealer, was performing what's called a vivisection, which is defined as the practice of performing operations on live animals for the purpose of experimentation or scientific research. And it's a very common practice in medical studies and as a way to teach medicine or other natural sciences back in the 19th and 20th centuries. Yeah, Professor Starling was definitely not alone in this practice, nor was he an unusually cruel person for his time in using animals this way. I work at a medical university, and trust me, there's quite a lot of gruesome and, by modern standards, very unethical things that used to be done in the name of science and education. Around the time Professor Starling was performing his lectures with the little brown dog, or many of them because uh, they died after each time, the use of animals in medical science and teaching was beginning to be questioned, and there were several anti-vivisection leagues formed around the UK in what was some ways a forerunner to today's animal rights groups. And this is where the whole thing turns into an affair, because unbeknownst to the professor and his students, two women from one of these anti-vivisection leagues were in his lecture hall this time. This was Miss Lizzie Lind Off Hargaby and Miss Laisa Schartau, both noble women from Sweden of all places. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to find out much about Laisa Schartau, but we know a bit about Lizzie Lind of Hargaby, or Emilia Augusta Louise Lind of Hargaby, as she was actually called. Yeah, you're, you're gonna get a nickname if you're, that's your real name. <laughs> Yeah, it's quite a mouthful, so let's just call her Lizzie. Lizzie was born in Stockholm in 1878. Like we said, she was born into a noble family. Her dad was a lawyer and her grandfather was the chamberlain to the king. She was sent to the UK at a young age to attend the prestigious Cheltenham Ladies' College and ended up staying, residing in the country until her death in 1963. So, a bit like me... I suppose. She came to the UK to study and ended up living there. But she never seemed to have met an English partner, though, like me. Yeah, and uh, your grandfather was probably as far away from being <laughs> Chamberlain to the King as yeah. possible. <laughs> and unlike Orsa, uh, she had a private fortune that allowed <laughs> her to not really work and uh, dedicate her time to political and ideological causes like anti-vivisection, humanitarianism and women's rights. Yeah, no, unfortunately, uh, I don't have a private fortune. I'm also not as interested in spiritualism as she was. She was the chairperson of the London Spiritualist Alliance for several years. I've also seen photos of her and I can tell that I can't quite pull off big Edwardian-style hats in the way that she could. But anyway, hats and spiritualism aside, let's get back to the brown dog. The case ends up in court, and whilst the Old Bailey, that famous court, rules in favour of the professor and in time-honoured fashion accuses the women of just being hysterical, the case will spark years of debate around vivisection and the use of, in particular, dogs in teaching medicine at university. Indeed, a few years later, there was a royal commission on vivisection, which brought about some of the first regulations on the use of animals in science. And for years, there were fierce debates going on between 
anti-vivisectionists and medical students in particular. Yeah, and when we say fierce, we mean fierce. There were several instances when medical students broke into anti-vivisectionist meetings and generally tried to make a disturbance. And this was especially when Lizzie, who was a bit of a front figure in the movement, were due to speak that there were incidences involving medical students breaking in and screaming and shouting to disturb the meetings, even throwing what was described in the press at the time as stink bombs on a few occasions. And it's quite interesting that like the disruption is done by the medical students. You'd imagine it would be maybe the other way around. Do, did the women run into lectures and throw stink bombs? Not that I came across in the research. I think people, both students and professors, were just... Uh, afraid of what it would do to their teaching and their education if they weren't allowed to use uh, live animals or sedated animals anymore. When an anti-vivisectionist league put up a memorial to the dogs that had died in scientific experiments in Battersea in London, they put up a statue, it ended up attracting so much vandalism and rioting around it that eventually the London police commissioner decided it had to be taken down because it was taking up six constables a day to guard it. But in spite of all the debates, riots and police overtime, stricter rules and regulations on how animals are used in science were brought in, and it can be argued that you can trace some of that back to the actions of two Swedish ladies, their comrades, and a little brown British dog. Yeah, that's true. And in 1985, a new memorial in the form of a statue of a small dog was put up in Battersea Park. Well, that's nice. On that note, all that remains is to really say thank you to Diego and all the other dogs and other pets out there who've been listening to us, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. And of course, a big thank you to all the human listeners out there too. We hope you enjoyed it as well. We're going to be back in two weeks with more history focusing on humans this time as we continue our journey through Sweden in the 1400s and see what King Eric of the Kalmar Union gets up to as discontent with his rule continues to grow. So we'll see what happens there. Yes, thank you so much for listening. And as always, don't forget to check out our website, a aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com. And if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or email flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. And please consider doing what Diego and his owner Stephen did, and that was leave a review on whatever platform you listen to us on. It helps get us noticed and bumps us up in the feeds and we get new listeners, and it's a nice thing to read out. And we've almost reached 100 reviews on iTunes, so maybe you'll be number 100. Yes, uh, review number 100, guaranteed to be read out. Yes. Uh, with that said, all that remains is to say until next time, take care and bye-bye. Hey, do. Woof, woof. Woof. up staying, residing in the country until her death in 16... <laughs> She's a time traveller. <laughs> what is it with me and dates today? She's met Doc Brown and Marty McFly. And, and she Let's met... Let's get up to 88 miles an hour. <laughs>
And she met Streif in yeah, 1693 or whatever uh, she was. 